When I was in high school, a teacher once accused me of being obsequious. Having not yet encountered this word in my SAT prep, I was forced to look it up in a dictionary, which in the pre-smartphone era meant I had to actually go find a dictionary. You can imagine my indignation upon discovering that an obsequious person relies on excessive use of flattery to ingratiate themselves with someone important, which is to say, my teacher used a fancy word to call me a kiss-up. Can you imagine? And to add insult to injury, I discovered that an obsequious person is, by definition, insincere disingenuous, which is to say it is a perfect word to describe Jesus's rivals in the story that we just heard from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus's obsequious opponents greet him with words of insincere fawning and flattery. Teacher, they say to Jesus, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. But their true intention is to entrap Jesus. Their words are dripping with praise, but their hearts are full of malice. In our gospel readings over the last few weeks, this tension between Jesus and his adversaries has begun to build. You need to remember that today's uh, story takes place um, and it unfolds only days actually after the events of Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, um, was greeted with cries of Hosanna, and proclaimed the long-awaited Jewish Messiah by the crowds. From there, Jesus moves to the temple where we meet him today, that center of Jewish religious life and power where he is teaching and telling parables about a kingdom where the last will be made first and the first will be last. Naturally, those in positions of power are starting to feel a little bit threatened. So threatened, in fact, that today we see this unlikely alliance of the Pharisees, which are the religious elite, and the Herodians, who are friends of the emperor. It seems that opposition to Jesus can make friends out of enemies. In just a matter of days, they will arrest Jesus and put him to death. But for today, they try and test him with their cunning words in the form of this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now. If Jesus answers, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes, he will appear sympathetic to the Roman Empire. And this will alienate him with his Jewish followers, who are the victims of Roman oppression. But if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay the taxes, then he will expose himself to charges of sedition. And this would give the Roman authorities a reason to arrest him. So it appears that Jesus is trapped. But Jesus refuses to play by the rules of his questioner's game. He He declines to answer yes or no, and instead poses a question to them. 
whose image and name appears on the coin used to pay the tax? The emperor's, they reply. Well, then give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, Jesus says, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus evades their trap, which is great, but what does his answer mean for us today, 2,000 years later? Well, for many years, it's been common to interpret Jesus' answer as a justification for dividing our lives into two distinct spheres, the civic realm and the spiritual realm. By calling us to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, Jesus clarifies the relationship between obedience to the state and obedience to God. His answer, some argue, suggests that you and I have a dual allegiance to the teachings and commands of God on the one hand and to the laws of the government on the other. And I must confess to you that I find this interpretation deeply unsatisfying. It is somehow far too neat and simple, and Jesus was, let's be honest, neither of those things. When we cling too tightly to a firm separation of our spiritual and civic lives, it seems to me that we deny God's rightful claim on the entirety of our lives. Yes, it is true that now we are citizens of an earthly kingdom, subject to its earthly laws. But we are citizens of God's kingdom first, and we work to bear the fruits of that kingdom here and now, even during our earthly sojourn. That's why we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is a timely topic for us because we are, as you all know, only a few weeks away from an election. And I imagine that as people of faith, we will strive to cast our votes and make our decisions in a way that reflects our most authentic understanding of how best to love God and to love our neighbor, which is our highest spiritual calling. Our participation in civic systems is not somehow removed from our spiritual life. We don't leave our spiritual selves on the shelf. And that participation is not divorced from the convictions of our faith. Indeed, we see that this plays out here at St. Paul's in our work with greater Cleveland congregations, where we work alongside other faith communities to work for positive social change in our community often by engaging directly with political figures and working through civic systems. These are places where we can be instruments of God's peace, God's justice, God's righteousness, and God's love. So, if our reading today is not primarily about a bifurcation of our civic and spiritual lives, then what is its message for us today? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, to where we started with those obsequious opponents of Jesus. Before he even attempts to answer their question, Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy, as he does over and over throughout the Gospels, most frequently in his debates with the Pharisees. Now, contrary to a common misconception, 
Jesus is not criticizing the Pharisees for their religious beliefs. As a faithful Jew, Jesus would have no doubt had great sympathy for the Pharisees and their devotion to Torah and its teaching. No, Jesus is not condemning their faith. He's condemning their hypocrisy, their false righteousness, their false personas, for coming to him under the false pretense of caring about matters of faith when they cared only about their own power. The intention of the Pharisees' hearts did not match the content of the faith they professed. And Jesus calls us to a different way of living, to lives of integrity, lives of authenticity, lives of wholeness. No, Jesus made no claim on that coin because it contained the image of Caesar. Instead, Jesus claims us as the currency of his kingdom because we bear the image of God, our creator. We are the currency of God's peace, justice, and love in a world torn asunder by war, hatred, and violence. That's why we gather here this morning to be nourished by God's word and sacraments, to cultivate a faith that leads to good works in the world. May we leave here today renewed for the work of building God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.